Good morning, and welcome to Come and Reason class. Good morning. Good morning. Yes. Hey, hey, people. Let's begin with prayer, and then I'll go into some announcements. Gracious Father in heaven, we come before you, and uh, we ask that your blessings upon us, not only enlighten our minds and draw us closer to you, but we ask that you will oversee the events happening on this planet right now um, on a global scale, on a national scale, on a a family scale and an individual scale. Just just look down and uh, from your uh, from your wisdom and intervene in the circumstances to ultimately bring about your will and the outcome as you'd have it be. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. I want to remind you of the Power of Love training and equipping course that is now on our website with all of the resources, the lectures in both video and audio, the PowerPoint slides for you to download, the syllabus to use in local class or group discussion. And so we hope you'll take advantage of that. Let's go ahead and uh, go into our lesson now. We're doing um, lesson number two in the uh, study guide, How to Interpret Scripture, and the title is The Origin and Nature of the Bible. And the first paragraph says, The way we see and understand the origin and nature of Scripture greatly impacts the role that the Bible plays in our lives and in the church at large. How we interpret the Bible is significantly shaped and influenced by our understanding of the process of revelation and inspiration. When we want to understand Scripture correctly, we first of all, need to allow the Bible to determine basic parameters of how it should be treated. We cannot study mathematics with, um, with the empirical methods employed in biology or sociology. We cannot study physics with the same tools used to study history. In a similar manner, the spiritual truths of the Bible will not be known and understood correctly um, by atheists, atheistic methods that approach the Bible as if God did not exist. Instead, our interpretations of Scripture need to be taken seriously. The divine human dimension takes seriously the divine human mention of God's Word. Hence, what we need for a proper interpretation of Scripture is that we approach the Bible in faith rather than with methodological skepticism or doubt. So the lesson brings up a good point that our preconceived ideas and assumed premises and mindsets and beliefs that we hold before we go to the Bible impact uh, what we uh, learn from the Bible and how we view it. The lesson emphasizes the godless mindset and how if one does not believe in God, then when they look at the Bible, they will not understand basic biblical truths. Maybe they will see it as a bunch of myths or fairy tales. There's no doubt about that, that preconceived ideas have a huge impact. But is it only preconceived ideas of a godless mindset? What about other ones? How about this? Uh, this is the preconceived idea, that the Bible teaches about a Messiah that is to come, and when he comes, he will use the might and power to overthrow the enemies of Israel and rule the earth with a strong iron hand. Did those ideas corrupt how the Pharisees in Christ's day viewed the scriptures? What about today? Do any religious groups believe the same idea about the second coming, that he will come with power and might to destroy the enemies with physical might, and rule the nations with a rod, a rod of iron. Will that interpret how? Will that impact how we interpret Scripture? How about this as a, a belief we have before we even go to the Scripture? The Bible is to be taken as it reads without reasoning things through. The Bible said it. I believe it. That settles it. Who are you to question? Well, I have known of, of psychotic patients who have actually gouged out their eyes because of the text where Jesus says, your eye offends thee, pluck it out. Should they, should they take the Bible as it reads? Do you take the Bible as it reads, 
If you've looked at something that was offensive, will you pluck your eyes out? Or do you reason it through and realize maybe it means something other than literally plucking out your eye? How about other passages in Scripture? Can we also reason through those, or do we just take it as it reads? How about this one? Before we go to the Bible. The Bible is to be taken alone, divorced from science, nature, and life experiences. If that's how we read the Bible, will it impact how we interpret things, our preconceived ideas and beliefs? Oh, and I forgot to tell you all, if you want to ask questions, Francesca is um, monitoring live on our Facebook page. And on our Facebook page, as we go through, if you type in questions, Francesca will ask them here during class today. So if you do have questions, go ahead and, um, if you're watching live here today, uh, send those in. How about this one as a preconceived idea? God's law functions like human law, a system of imperial rules without natural consequence that requires God to oversee it as a judicial magistrate and inflict punishment. If that's the belief you have before you read Scripture, will it impact the lessons you learn? In fact, could it cause you to be a strong Bible believer that goes out and actually misrepresents God? The lesson also points out the value of faith and contrasts faith with skepticism. To be sure, a person who denies God and has the belief that the Bible is nothing but myths and fairy tales and then goes to read it will not be reading it to discover God or God's truth. They'll be reading it to find fault and to find things that uh, they can use to mock those who believe in God. There's no question about that. But are these the only two options that we approach the Bible with faith, or we reproach it with skepticism. Can a person have faith in the wrong God and read Scripture? Remember, Jesus said at the end of time that will come to him in his, in his name, say, I prophesied in your name, we cast out demons in your name, not in the name of Buddha, in the name of Jesus. He says, get ye hence, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. What happens when people do believe in God and have faith in the Scripture, but they have the wrong view of God when they study Scripture. What happens then? Well, there were people 2,000 years ago that crucified Christ. Do you remember hearing about the Salem witch trials? Who conducted the Salem witch trials? It was the Puritans who believed in the King James Bible and themselves had been persecuted by the Catholics and fled to America, but they believed the Bible and ended up persecuting How about Christians today who want to pass certain laws in the country they live in order to make others practice or live their life the way the Christian believes? How about another option instead of just faith or skepticism? How about not having faith but also not being a skeptic? How about being somebody who just doesn't really know and that yet they have an honest heart to discover. You know, I don't really know what the Bible teaches. I don't have faith in it, but I don't necessarily think it's wrong. I just have never said it. And I go to the Bible with a open, honest heart seeking truth. Are there people like that that might go to the Bible? Yeah, so I don't think these are the two options only. I think there's other people, and I think we've all heard of stories of individuals who had an honest heart searching for truth. Um, who were studying the scriptures and didn't know what they meant. Remember the eunuch, uh, the, uh, eunuch, the Ethiopian that Philip met was a person, I think, along those lines. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph, the Bible is not like any other book. 
According to the Apostle Peter, the prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit in such a way that the content of their message came from God. They did not invent it themselves. Rather than being cunningly devised fables, the prophetic message of the Bible is of divine origin, and thus it is truthful and trustworthy. Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. God was at work in in the process of revelation, where he made known his will to selected human beings. No doubt about it, in my view, the Bible is trustworthy and truthful. But does that mean that every text in the Bible is a true statement and should be taken as it reads? Remember, Satan quoted scripture to Jesus in order to try to deceive him. Scripture was being used by Satan to create a falsehood. Does this happen today? Can people use scripture to create falsehoods? How about when disaster strikes and people say God is doing it? What about the current corona pandemic? Some people are saying God is doing this. Are viruses part of God's creation? No. No, you're exactly right. They're not. And I wrote a blog a couple weeks ago. If you haven't read it, go to our website. Where did viruses come from? Viruses are not living organisms. They're simply coded. They're pieces of code that are able to infect God's living organisms to cause havoc, reproduce themselves. Ultimately, if something doesn't stop them, they kill the host and kill themselves. They are a representation of selfishness in a physical form that corrupts God's creation. And if you'd like more data, I encourage you to go to our website and read the blog on that. No, viruses are not part of God's creation. One person posted on our Facebook page in response to the um, blog on viruses, they quoted Isaiah 49.12, um, uh, claiming, yes, God created the viruses, all things come from God, including darkness and evil. And uh, Isaiah 49.12 reads, I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. And so they say, see, the Bible. They're using the Bible. And are they using the Bible here with this text to promote truth? Or are they using the Bible to create falsehood? See, several points have to be understood when we read a text like this. First, in Scripture, the Bible in Old Testament times often credits credits God for causing things he merely permits. Think about how King Saul died. God did not stop King Saul. King Saul died by falling on his own sword and committing suicide. And you can read about that in 1 Samuel 31, 4 through 6. But in 1 Chronicles 10, 13, and 14, the Bible says, Saul died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. He did not keep the word of the Lord and even consulted a medium for guidance and did not inquire of the Lord. So the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, son of Jesse. So here's an example of where the Bible, in the First Chronicles text, makes it sound like God did it, when in reality Saul did it and God merely didn't stop him. Question from somebody. Yes, this is from Patty. She said, please help me understand some of the harsh comments like you're talking about in the Old Testament. But she um, is talking about Leviticus 24.16. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord should be put to death. 
So in Leviticus 24.16, the context there is the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, and they had lived 400 years as slaves, and as slaves, um, a slave would be put to death for very minor infractions. Uh, and so this is setting up a social structure in which they're trying to lead people out of this cruel mindset of devaluing anything to a healthier mindset. That's why God set up an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, limb for limb, life for life, rather than simply life. So why would they have such a harsh punishment here? Well, true story. In uh, the 1990s, after the Desert Storm, Desert Shield um, takeover of Iraq, the U.S. government set up a inner, inner, um, a t- caretaker government there in Iraq. And um, during that time, uh, NPR reported on a true story about how an Iraqi grocery store was firebombed and the owner of the store and the three employees that that uh, work there were killed in the firebomb and the reason for this was a local mullah a islamic cleric put out a fatwa which is a edict or order that celery was not to be displayed in the produce section next to tomatoes and the reason for this was in their mindset that could look like an erect male. So this was an offense to their way of thinking. Unfortunately, the grocer put out celery, celery next to tomatoes, and therefore the store was firebombed and the people were killed. In other words, they received the death penalty. Now, if you are the governor of Iraq, in your judgment as an American, which is worse, celery next to tomatoes or driving drunk? Well, clearly, driving drunk is worse. If you want the local people to take driving drunk seriously, and they think that celery stalks and tomatoes are worth the death penalty, what penalty will you have to give driving drunk? If you just give it a fine, 10 days in jail, will they take it seriously when celery stalks and tomatoes are a death penalty? No, if you want them to take it seriously, you have to give them a death penalty. That's what you're dealing with in Leviticus. The mindsets of the people would only take a death penalty seriously. Anything else was trivial to them. And so God met them where they were and communicated a language they would understand with the goal of leading them away to that, from that to a higher reality. And if you read the rest of what was written um, in the first five books, you will find the message of love. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. It's all there. But this is where he had to meet them. So that's how we understand that. So, back to the, uh, uh, the Isaiah text is, we see first that the Bible sometimes credits God as causing things he permits. Second, the Hebrew word ra um, from, uh, can refer to moral evil occurring within the character or external trouble that occurs outside of being. In this case, the text is referring to the latter. God does at times use his power to bring disasters upon nations or individuals, um, in order to bring them to repentance and fulfill his healing plan. Think of the ten plagues of Egypt. God brought those ten plagues. But these were not punishments. These were attacks on the gods of Egypt to, to expose in the minds of both the Hebrews and the Egyptians that these were false gods and lead them to consider the true God and turn to repentance. And so God sometimes does this. But for those who don't understand reality don't understand God who is love. As they see these loving interventions, they may falsely conclude that God is 
imperialistic and punishing and authoritarian and inflicting source of pain and suffering, and thus conclude that he causes evil, which he does not do. Finally, the passage in Isaiah was specifically referring to King Cyrus, who was a pagan ruler and called by God to release the um, Israelites after 70 years of captivity. And he worshipped pagan gods, and pagan gods are always about power and might. The more powerful the god, the greater he is believed to be. Therefore, God, speaking a language designed to reach minds of the pagans that they are dealing with at the time, God is the one who can cause both light and darkness. He's the one who's in charge. You better listen to the God of Israel and stop listening to these pagan gods. So this is also part of the reason the language is there in the Isaiah text. Unfortunately, people take and clip a text right out of context, use it as a statement, make a whole theology around it because they go with a preconceived idea that God makes good and God makes evil and he's in charge of any, everything. And that's just, this is how they do it. When you put it together with other scripture, though, like 1 John 1.5, here's 1 John 1.5. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Wow, that wouldn't seem to fit with the Isaiah text if we take it literally in Isaiah. James 1.13. When tempted, no one should say, God's tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Or 1 John 4.16. God is love. So these are examples of how people can use the scripture to create falsehood. Another one would be the text on God's wrath, where they they go to the, with a preconceived idea of human law, and then they will make a statement that God's wrath is like our wrath, using power to vent anger to hurt people who have upset you. Rather than the biblical view is described in many places, and I like the one in Romans chapter 1, best, where it says the wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And he goes on to tell you five times the wrath comes because they rejected the knowledge or truth of God. And so God did something. In verse 24, 26, and 28, God gave them up. He let them go. And what happens when the source of life lets you go? You die. And so it is not an infliction. It's simply God surrendering a person to reap what they've chosen. That's the wrath of God. Second paragraph says, Direct verbal communication between God and particular human beings is an inescapable fact of the scripture. This is why the Bible has special divine authority, and we need to take the divine element into consideration in our interpretation of the scripture. Having our holy God as the ultimate author of uh, the, the biblical books are aptly called holy scriptures. First, first thing, I just thought it would be interesting. Can you think of some people to whom God spoke to directly? I thought it was an interesting question, so I did a little research. I'm sure some of them will pop into your mind really quick. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, God spoke to directly. That's a good one. Okay, and I'm sure we all remember Moses. God spoke to him face-to-face as a man speaks to a friend. And, of course, the apostles, if we take Jesus as God on earth in his human form, the apostles and all the people on earth that met and talked to Jesus, even his enemies, okay, if we take that, okay, that's a in human form, those 33 years, we'll set them in a unique category and we will, we will consider them as God spoke to them because they spoke to Jesus. But, but the rest will be God speaking in a non-incarnate form. Can you think of others? Well, I went and made a list. Okay? God spoke to Cain. Genesis, and, and, and the texts are in the notes. You want the text where you can find these? They're in the notes. God spoke to Noah. God spoke to Noah and his sons. God spoke to Job and his friends. Now, we all know God spoke to Abraham. God also spoke to Isaac and Jacob. We already mentioned Moses. 
God spoke to Aaron. God spoke to Miriam. Now, some might say, what about the leaders of Israel when he brought the 70 together? Well, I went and looked that up because I thought, maybe he spoke to those 70 too. Well, the text says that they were brought there, and while they were there, God spoke to Moses. <laughs> and they were there as God spoke to Moses, so they observed, and, but it doesn't say that God spoke to them. It said that it diffused the spirit that was on Moses onto them and gave them spirit, and they began to prophesy. But it doesn't say they actually spoke to them. So, that's, that's a, But they heard God speak. Joshua, God spoke to Joshua. Now, you remember God spoke to Samuel. He went to Eli. But oh, no, but no, that was God speaking to Samuel. God spoke to David. And all the texts are in here. God spoke to Nathan. God spoke to Solomon. To Jehu. To Elijah. To Isaiah. To Ahaz. To Manasseh and his people. There's the text. Manasseh and his people. And the Manasseh and his people, I think it's the only one where God spoke to them directly, and right behind it, they didn't listen. They, re- they didn't listen to what he said. Right there, they just rejected it. Imagine that. God speaks to you directly, and you still don't listen. God spoke to Jonah. Jonah heard, understood, didn't like. Tried to stop, object, argue. There's a long conversation. It's a good, good, good place there. Um, Ezekiel, Hosea, Haggai, Zechariah, the people at Jesus' baptism. Did you mention Daniel? Did he speak to Daniel? Uh, the question is about Daniel. No evidence. There's nothing that says he spoke to Daniel directly. And now the question of Daniel, and, and maybe you can look that up. The angel, the angel came to spoke to Daniel. Okay, and sometimes the angel identifies as Gabriel, and sometimes the angel. I don't think the angel is always identified. So because Gabriel is identified, I. You know, I'm taking the assumption that it's Gabriel each time, but perhaps it was the angel of the Lord, which is, um, as, uh, and why, you know who else I did not list? Manoah and his wife, because I brought that up last time. Manoah and his wife is another one, so that's not in the notes this week. Um, Paul, God spoke to Paul. Now, of all these that were listed, which one wrote script, which ones of these that God spoke to directly wrote scripture? I'll just run them really fast. Moses, Joshua, Samuel, David, Solomon, Isaiah, Jonah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Haggai, Zechariah, Matthew, Mark, John, James, Peter, Jude, Paul. Why doesn't God speak to us directly today? Have you ever asked that question? Ever wondered? Well, just use your imagination and imagine this tonight. You're in your bedroom, about to go to sleep, and suddenly a a being manifest, appears in your room and begins to talk to you. Do you understand why the first thing you almost always hear is, fear not? (laughs) Do you not think you would go, (laughs) and your heart would start pounding really fast and you'd be frightened? And the first thing if you read in Scripture almost always is, fear not. (laughs) Don't be afraid. It's okay. Chill, chill. (laughs) But I think that would be our initial response. And uh, then I've often wondered also, um, would we be able to know whether an angel of the Lord or one of Satan's angels impersonating the angel of the Lord? Remember, Satan appeared as Jesus to Jesus as angel of light. Could we tell instantly? Could we know? Maybe the Lord protects us from things like that. The, um, the lesson suggests that God is the ultimate author of the Bible. 
And so I thought we'd jump to Monday's lesson to read the last paragraph in Monday's lesson, which is actual quotation out of the book, Great, The Great Controversy. And it says, the, the Bible points to God as its author, yet it, it, it was written by human hands. And in the varied style of its different books, it presents the characteristics of the several writers. The truths revealed are all given by inspiration of God, yet they are expressed in the words of men. What does this mean? God is the author of Scripture. What does this mean? That he directed it and oversaw it? Inspired it? But does that mean that God wrote the Bible? Is the Bible a dictation from God? And the Bible penmen wrote down what God told them to write down. Are the words of the Bible inspired? Or were the men who wrote the Bible inspired and they chose the words to best communicate the inspired ideas? Well, consider this quote from the same person who wrote The Great Controversy out of a book called First Selected Messages, page 21. See if you agree with this or disagree. The Bible is written by inspired men, but it is not God's mode of thought and expression. It is that of humanity. God as a writer is not represented. Men will often say such an expression is not like God, but God has not put himself in words, in logic, in rhetoric, on trial in the Bible. The writers of the Bible were God's penmen, not his pen. Look at the different writers. It is not the words of the Bible that are inspired, but the men that were inspired. Inspiration acts not on the man's words or his expressions, but on the man himself, who under the influence of the Holy Ghost is imbued with thoughts. But the words and thoughts receive the impress of the individual mind. The divine mind is diffused. The divine mind and will is combined with the human mind and will. Thus, the utterances of men are the word of God. So God is the author in that he inspired the men with truths to be communicated. But God is not the writer of the Bible. The Bible does not represent God's words, but God's truths. His law, his methods, his character. It also exposes Satan for who he is. The author of lies, death, selfishness, and the nature and character of sin, and the plan of salvation. This is what the Bible communicates. Now, why is it under, important to understand this? Because many people get stuck in concrete or magical thinking and believe that it is essential to know the right word or the right words. In other words, they believe in word inspiration. And that somehow if you get the right word, that word has power. Say it, speak it, and you have the power. If you know the right word. It's almost like the Bible becomes a magic book of incantations if we can just get the right words. Such as, we should never pray in the name of Jesus. We should pray in the name of Joshua. Well, not really Joshua. It really should be Yahshua. We have to get it right. The word must be right. Or, 
It's not God. It's Jehovah. Well, no, it's not. It's Yahweh. Get it right. Get the right word. And the arguments over the words go back and forth. And divert the mind away from the fact that name is always about character, not about words. Do you have the right character in your heart of the one you love as God? That's the real question. But we argue over the words, we miss the whole point, and we become petty. Or, And there are many, many places like this where people argue over words when it comes to various doctrines and things, rather than understanding the deeper meaning. Third paragraph points out that uh, the scripture is practical. What does that mean to be practical? Useful. Useful. Applicable. That's exactly right. So what is required then of the scripture for it to be practical? It requires something. We have to understand it. Well, we have to understand it for us to apply it, for us to make it practical. But for the for the scripture itself to be practical, for what's written there to be practical, it requires something. That it's based on design law, on how reality actually works. When you understand reality and how it actually works, then the truths of that reality become practical, rather than mystical or superstitious superstitious beliefs and mystical beliefs are impractical they don't have practical useful application they become mysterious this is why if you read in the new testament the new testament leaders gave the new converts three rules and the three rules they gave them were practical based on design law. Three practical things to do for their health and their spiritual health. Rather than all of the theater, theatrics, and that's what the Old Testament um, sanctuary service was. It was theatrical. Its practical purpose was as a teaching tool to a larger reality. But it became corrupted to be believed that it had some merit in carrying out the task rather than simply teaching. And thus it became an obstruction to knowing God because people became consumed with the actual ritual as being meritorious rather than understanding it was simply teaching. So what was it the New Testament church taught them, the three rules that were practical? First, don't um, be polluted by foods offered to idols. Well, what does that mean? Don't be polluted by foods offered to idols. An idol cannot change the nutritional quality of the food. Therefore, eating foods offered to idols does not pollute the body. Paul makes this clear in Romans 14. So the issue here was not about nutrition in this rule. They were addressing the design law of worship. By beholding, we become changed, um, also known as modeling. What we believe has power over us. And truth heals and sets free, lies damage and enslave. So the, the New Testament directive was don't allow your minds to become contaminated by giving any credence to idols. Thus don't eat foods polluted by the idea that the idol is giving you the bounty or the idol has power over you if you eat it. That's how you become polluted, by giving the idol some power. Don't let yourself become polluted by that. Very practical. Next was, 
don't be polluted by sexual immorality. God designed human relationships to operate on love and trust. When sexual intimacy occurs between husband and wife, as God designed, healthy bonding occurs. Brain actually rewires, uh, rewires the circuits of attachment and affection. So we have heightened arousal and, and, and trust and confidence in our spouse. This is a design law on how our bi- biology is actually built to work. Deviating from this, having multiple sexual partners or, or b- betraying and cheating and committing adultery damages this pathway, undermines trust, inflames the um, fear circuitry, in- increases inflammatory cascades, and thus undermines healthy mind, healthy body, and healthy relationships. It's a violation of design law. Thus, again, very practical. And then the last rule was don't eat meat strangled from strangled animals or drink blood. Again, this also violates its sign law, the laws of health. Uh, humans were not originally designed to eat meat at all, but when God gave them permission to eat meat, um, the blood is what carries the waste products and the stress hormones and the various inflammatory factors, and there were to drain the blood. So the animals, when they would slaughter them, would be hung upside down, and they would have their, their arteries or veins um, sliced, and all the blood would drain out of them uh, so that there would be no blood in the meat at all. This is exactly the opposite of how... Meats are prepared in the industry today. People want their steaks bloody, and they want them raw. Um, They want as much um, blood and fat in it. But in the Bible preparations in Leviticus, they had to drain all the blood, they had to cut out all the fat, and they had to cook it well done. Um, You Try that at a restaurant, see how well that works today. It's not very flavorful. They want, uh, so people want, but the blood is what carries and the fat is what carries the um, the toxins, and so they, they don't want them to do this. So again, health-related practical guidance. Three practical things, very simple. The lesson points out that we need the Holy Spirit to apply to our lives what God has revealed in his word. Are we to apply everything to our lives that God has revealed in his word? Or are some things only applicable, some things revealed in Scripture, are uh, are only applicable to certain people at certain times in history? Well, should all of us follow the example of Abraham and take our firstborn child to a mountain to sacrifice, hoping and expecting God to intervene to prevent it? No, this was specific directive given to a specific person at a specific time for a specific reason. Should all of us observe the feast days of the Old Testament? No, these were, again, specific directives to a specific people at a specific time for a specific purpose. Does that mean we would do wrong today if we did observe the feast days? That depends. Not necessarily. It would really depend on the reason you're observing them. A person could choose to observe the feast days in order to gain insight into the experience of what it was like for the people of the Old Testament to uh, approach it as a learning tool, a learning objective, to gain insights into the plan of salvation, the metaphors uh, that God wanted to uh, them to experience and act out. If one did it in this way, understanding it, its purpose, uh, it could be beneficial. But if one were to observe the feast days out of a sense of obligation, because they felt that if they didn't, they would be under condemnation of God, and it was required in order for God to have God's grace to work in their life, then such practices could actually obstruct the ability to grow in truth. What about the foods we eat? Should we eat only the foods 
contained in the approved list in Scripture? Mm-hmm. Grasshopper. Grasshopper, yes. Gra- grasshoppers and locusts are on the list. Yum. Yeah. Um, I don't think chocolate is on the list, though. <laughs> so we couldn't have chocolate-covered grasshoppers. But should we eat only things on the list? If, if we eat only the things on the list, only. That means we can't be vegans. We're only eating what's on the list. We have to eat all those uh, Old Testament meats that are on the list. So I, I don't know that we should take the Bible and eat only the things on the list, should we? Is that how we approach it? A to-do list? Or do we understand there are principles involved? And we understand the laws of health? And we update and inform ourselves as truth unfolds and eat those things that are healthiest for the spirit temple in the circumstances we find ourselves in, in order to honor God with our bodies. That's a different approach than the checklist, find what the Bible says I'm allowed to do and do it. Yes? Um, Someone commented, they said, can you apply the same argument from feast days to the Sabbath? What would happen you were talking about these days. So Paul says when it, in uh, Romans chapter 14, if you read the context, some esteem one day above others and some esteem all days as the same. Let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. Now, is Paul saying that all days are the same? Not at all. He's not taking the position that the Sabbath is not and special in some way. He's taking the position that it benefits no one unless they're fully persuaded in their own mind. Think of it this way. Do we believe that it is important for people to come to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior? Yes, we do. Do they need to be fully persuaded in their own mind in order to be benefited by that? Yes, they do. And so the position on the Sabbath, in my view, would be be fully persuaded in your own mind. It is the reason one observes it. There are many people who can observe the Sabbath and have the right day of the week and be an enemy of God and crucify him and want him off by the end of the day. So yes, the same principles can be applied to the Sabbath because people can keep the Sabbath for the wrong reasons and serve the wrong God on the right day and ultimately crucify the creator of the Sabbath. So this wasn't really a discussion about the rightness or the wrongness of the Sabbath. It was a discussion about your beliefs about those things and why you're doing them, and that is really the key to it all. People can worship Jesus for the wrong reasons. And we already talked about the text where Jesus said they will come to him in the last day and say, we did all this in your name. And he says, I never knew you. You're not my friend. Last paragraph. Scripture also says, surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. Amos 3.7. The biblical word for revelation in its various forms, expresses the idea that something previously hidden has now been disclosed or unveiled and thus becomes known and made manifest. As human beings, we need such an uncovering or revelation, for we are sinful beings, separated from God because of our sin, and therefore dependent upon him to know his will. Boy, I wish we had the class today, because I'd love to say, what are your thoughts on that? (laughs) What do you understand that to mean? Because um, certainly we are sinful beings and we need God to reveal himself to us. Uh, I think there's something, a couple elements that are really prime and core that are completely left out. And this idea, I think, can actually connote a falsehood 
not a falsehood about us being sinful, but it can connote this, this kind of worm mentality that it is our, our inherent sinfulness that is the, is, the, is the core problem. But there are a couple prime problems before our sinfulness. Our sinfulness is a problem, no question. But number one, God is an infinite being and we're finite. He lives in unapproachable light according to Scripture. Even in heaven, uh, before sin, infinite, uh, finite beings like Lucifer or Gabriel cannot enter infinity. And so any truth about God to sinless beings, Adam and Eve in Eden before sin, they had to have God reveal truth to them. So this idea that God has to reveal truth to us because we're sinful, we're sinful, no question about it. Our sin obstructs our ability to understand truth, no question about it. But even in Eden, that principle is still true. Finite beings must have God reveal truth to them because they're not infinite. But more than that, more than our own sinfulness, we live in a battle zone and Satan is the father of lies. In heaven, Satan lied to angels. And if you read widely, you'll discover that even some of the unfallen angels, look in the book of Job, were confused by what Satan was saying. They didn't rebel. They didn't believe Satan. But they had confusion that needed to be cleared up. That's why it says in Scripture that all things in heaven and earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross. And so we have a liar misrepresenting God. So we have to have truth revealed to us to refute the lies that are being told, just as the angels in heaven. And of course we need truth revealed because we're also sinful, have our own misconceptions, have our own fears and so forth going on. So I think, though, there's a couple major points that need to be included in why God has to reveal truth. One, we're finite. Two, we have an enemy that is constantly lying and constantly obstructing truth, constantly seeking to get in the way. And then, of course, our nature. Boy, I wish we had a class today because I think that would be a good discussion. Further, though, let's talk about what our nature does and how our nature can rup- makes it hard for us to see. When we do sin, what does sin cause in us? causes fear, causes guilt, causes shame. And what is the natural response to our guilt, fear, and shame? The natural response to deny and distort, to externalize, to blame, to justify. In other words, it wasn't me. It was the woman, Lord. I, 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 hey, they deserve that. Hey, I, was, I had every right to do that. Mind begins to twist itself, to make a storyline, to make us look good. This is how we become self-deceived. And this is what sin naturally does. Because the, the feelings of guilt and shame are horrible, we don't want to feel them. And rather than being truthful at this point, we embrace the father of lies and begin to use lies to try to hide ourselves from the truth of our own condition. And it's only the truth that will set us free. So we try to avoid that responsibility. And many of us have had periods in our life where we've done this, and only when we've been able to stop running from the reality of our own condition, stop telling the lie, stop blaming others, stand still, look in the mirror, embrace the truth, take responsibility, get on our knees before the Lord and say, Lord, it's me. I blew it. I'm a sinner. I can't fix it. That we experience his grace, his love, and we are surprised to realize he has never been the one condemning us. And we will hear like Adam heard when he said, I ran and hid because I was afraid. Well, who told you you were afraid? You didn't hear me say that. I wasn't pointing out your defects. That was your own inner voice condemning you. And you will discover that our own inner voice condemns us when we're out of harmony with God. And only peace is found in unity with him. And when we come back, we will find his grace and his love uh, eagerly willing to not only just forgive us,
but to heal us and restore us in heart and mind, to give us a new heart and right spirit. So it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We, we become new people. We're born again. But those in darkness don't want to come into the light lest their evil deeds be exposed, Jesus said. Lest they have their own corruption they're hiding from be seen to themselves first and then to others. And the reason people live in fear because they haven't been reborn, they haven't um, dealt with their own corruption, and so they live in fear if anyone were to see them for who they are, they would be rejected. And so they continue to live in the dark world of their own distortion. And we've all met people. We've got people in our worlds that live this way. And you can't have rational conversations with them because they have a warp over their mind that keeps them from ever being held accountable. And it's always someone else's fault. We know people like this. It's very sad. This is an interesting um, quote from um, a a, a little pamphlet called Bible Echo written in 1897. See what you think. For this time, light is shining from the throne of God upon his people, and he sends his messengers to give that light to the world. All the light given in different ages to the children of men, in promises, in prophecies, in threatenings, in testimony, and in example, all has been handed down to this generation by him who, in whom are hid all the treasures and wisdom and knowledge. But from this source... But from this source, meaning God, new light is constantly received by the Christian, showing yet more clearly the way to heaven. To those who will not see the light, who refuse to walk in the path, it reveals the light becomes darkness. But on the path of him who is willing to see, anxious to hear, and earnest to search for truth as it is in Jesus, it shines with increasing brightness. The Lord accepts those who are not only willing to hear, but who are ready also to obey. So what do you think about this idea? And of course it comes from scripture, um, that those who, uh, that, um, that the light within them becomes darkness. That as light, new light unfolds, if we only hold to the light of the past, the light that the Old Testament prophets had, for instance, those who accepted the light of the Old Testament prophets, but reject the light that Jesus brought, are left in darkness, and they continue to promote the Old Testament prophets, but they're stuck. They don't understand the reality of what Jesus has brought. They didn't embrace the new light. How about those who have embraced the New Testament prophets, but don't embrace unfolding light that we have today, and they stick with, say, what the Reformers taught 500 years ago, but they won't embrace the light of, say, design law, which I think is the light of the three angels' messages. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. And if we reject the light of the design law, God as creator and his laws are the laws upon which reality work, and hold to the imperialistic uh, idea that comes out of the dark ages, we may embrace the right doctrine, say, Seventh-day Sabbath, but we still teach the wrong imperial God who will punish you if you don't keep it, and who made up a rule and enforces it judicially. And thus we are not walking forward in the light, and the light becomes darkness to us. I've seen this happen with people that I know who have been presented this idea of design law, have seen beauty in it, talked about it, taught it, wrote about it, 
but also held to the idea that some part of the law is imperialistic. Some part of the law works like, like our law. Some part of the law requires God to be the enforcer. And over the course of the years, I have seen them slowly become more and more darkened in their mind and eventually start teaching irrational stuff because when you have laws that are not design laws, not reality-based laws, they're simply rules made up, then you can make up crazy rules that have no bearing in reality, that are not practical, and you can twist uh, God's character into something that looks more like an authoritarian dictator. And it's very sad to see. But it's the truth, because it's a design law. Our minds are transformed by the beliefs and ideas that we hold, the truths that we embrace. And if we embrace truths, we grow closer to God. If we eject, reject truths and hold the lies of the mind, so it becomes darkened. Monday's lesson, second paragraph, says... Um, all scripture is divinely inspired, even if it is, if not all parts are equally inspiring. And we talked about this last week, so I won't spend a lot of time on it. But remember, do we believe all scripture is divinely inspired? The Quran, the Book of Mormon, the Apocrypha, or do we believe all scripture inspired by God is useful? So that is the way to understand the text in Timothy. Not all scripture is inspired, but all scripture that is inspired by God is useful. What about all parts of the 66? that we believe is inspired by God. Um, what do we think about that? Is all of it, all parts of the 66 inspired? We say, absolutely. Well, what about um, 1 Corinthians 7.12? This is Paul writing. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Is that inspired since the inspired person said it was from him and not the Lord? So as the inspiration, God inspired him to let you know that this isn't inspired by God. I'll let you think about that one. Can prophets, those inspired by God, write things in Scripture that are not accurate in every detail? How about 1 Corinthians 1, 14 through 16? This is Paul again. I am thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, uh, so that no one can say that you were baptized into my name. Oh. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. So the Holy Spirit has trouble remembering? Or is this really not about every specific detail being accurate, but it's about the principles? And he's talking about the truth, and the truth is we are not baptized into Paul or Peter. We're baptized into Jesus, regardless of who baptizes. And that's the point, and that is the inspired truth, not the details of how many people Paul, Paul baptized. And this is where we go from concrete thinking and literalism to understanding the principles and what it means to be inspired, and it's the inspired truths that Paul was trying to communicate. How about this? Can a person inspired to write scripture, Peter in this case, actually be wrong on church matters? Well, I'll read to you out of Galatians chapter 2, 11-13. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews pointed, uh, joined him in this hypocrisy. We believe that this was inspired by God for Paul to write, and what is he writing about? That one of the uh, inspired men was actually wrong in church matters. Wait a second now. What does that mean with how you understand inspiration? Or church leaders. Or church leaders. 
It means that you are not to surrender your thinking. Every person fully persuaded in their own mind that you understand the principles of God's kingdom for yourself. And when you understand even a church leader that is doing something out of harmony with the principles of God, you don't believe him because he's a leader. You understand this is not how most churches work. Most churches want you to believe in an authoritarian, human construct God who makes up rules and passes his authority off, and they're, and they're supposedly God's representative or God's spokesperson, if he's your pastor, for instance, and you're supposed to take him as God's word, and you don't have a right to question him or disagree with him. This is all completely fraudulent. You have every right to disagree with him if what he is doing is violating the principles of God as the Holy Spirit has led you to understand them as found in God's word, in science, and in real life experiences. Bottom pink section says, um, Today there are biblical scholars who deny divine authorship of many parts of the Bible, even the points where uh, where many crucial teachings, creation, the exodus, the resurrection, are denied. Why is it so essential that we not open the door even a bit to this, uh, after all, are we to pass judgment upon the word of God? Well, I first want to agree with the authors that we should not doubt the divine inspiration of Scripture or the reliability of Scripture. And I believe in the creation, in the exodus, in the flood, in the resurrection. I, I, so I agree. But what about the last sentence? Are we to pass judgment on the word of God? Well, let me ask you some questions. And you can ask this, hopefully, as you teach class. Are we to make the judgment as to whether we can trust Scripture or not? Are we to judge whether to take something literal or metaphorical? Yes. Are we to judge what applies to our lives and what was specific to another time and place and other people's life and what does not apply to our life today? Are we to judge how the various truths that we accept as truths are to be applied to our lives? Are we to judge whether we can trust God himself? And if you're not sure, Romans chapter 3, verse 4, God, let God be proved true and every human being shown to be a liar as it is written, so that you will be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Hmm. Or Revelation fourteen seven, Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. The hour in human history is here, folks, for people to finally stop seeing God as an imperial dictator, enforcer of rules, source of pain, suffering, and death, punisher of the universe, and start seeing God as he has always been and revealed himself to be, the creator, the God who Jesus revealed himself to be. Let's make a right judgment about God. He's waiting for people to stand up and give that message. Tuesday's lesson. The lesson asks why God instructed that his revelation be written down. And just some very brief, simple purposes, I think. One, accuracy through generations. Increased ability to distribute. A reference source that we can return to as human memory can be flawed. Resistance to introduction of false narratives, as it's written down. But even with the written word, has have false narratives entered both the... Jewish teaching and the Christian teaching. And why is false narratives entered? A couple of reasons in my view. One, much, many people teach things that they never check the scripture for. They just don't read the scripture. They don't require their beliefs to really, or they will base it out of the, like the one text we talked about earlier. Take a test, here's scripture, and they'll base a whole theology out of it. 
out of one scripture wrested from its uh, context. Or they don't require scripture to harmonize with God's two other threads, nature and real life experiences. And when you don't require scripture to harmonize with reality and how reality works, then you can make lots of false uh, belief systems. Uh, Wednesday's lesson, and we're, we're uh, you know, getting low on time, so I'm going to move along. Wednesday's lesson says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, and the lesson makes several interesting analogies between the written word and the living word. And here's the, the uh, comparison between Jesus, the living word, and the written word. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, yet born of a woman. The scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit, yet written by men. Jesus became a man and lived in a specific time, in a specific place, yet that did not nullify his divinity. The scripture was written in specific times and specific places, but does not deny its divine origins. Jesus is not limited uh, in, in benefit to a time and place that he lived on earth, and the scriptures are not limited in benefit to a time and place in which they were written. Jesus came down to the level of humanity in order to reveal God to us, and the scripture is written in the language of humanity in order to reveal God to us. And as we ingest truth, the written word, those words become building blocks of beliefs, ideas, constructs, all that uh, lead us back to a knowledge of God, and dispel the lies opening the heart so the heart can be purified, thus we eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of God, metaphorically speaking. Thursday's lesson. See, I'm, I'm, I'm able to get through the lesson, guys, uh, maybe. And we have just a couple of minutes left. In Thursday's lesson, the lesson points out the importance of faith in understanding the Bible. What is faith based upon? Do we have faith before we hear the Scripture because the lesson points out it's important to have faith in order to understand the scripture. That's the point they're making. Do we have faith before we actually hear the scripture? Or is the scripture the actual foundation of the faith? And if we don't hear scripture, then we really don't have a basis for our faith. And so the scripture becomes the basis of the faith that we then have in the scripture. Well, Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, For it is by faith that we are put right with God. It is by our confession that we are saved. The scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. This includes everyone because there is no difference between Jews and Gentiles. God is the same Lord of all, richly and blesses uh, all who call on him. As the scripture says, everyone who calls on the Lord for help will be saved. But how can they call on him uh, for help if they have not believed? And how can they believe if they have not heard the message? And how can they hear the message that it is not proclaimed? And how can the message be proclaimed if messengers are not sent out? As the scripture says, how wonderful is the coming of the messengers to bring the good news. And so the idea here that we have to have faith and our faith does enhance our ability to understand scripture, but there's an aspect here that the people have to hear the truth as revealed in scripture as the basis of their faith. So upon what is our faith based? The The, the, the uh, scripture points out that it's based on a, a loving, trusting relationship with God. I think this is true. But how does one to come to have a lo- loving, trusting relationship? Think about a child and a parent. What's the basis of the child's trust in the parent? Isn't it experience with the parent that is loving and trusting? 
and trustworthy? Or does a child come to love and trust their parent by reading about their parent in a book? How many people, their entire relationship is more like reading the Bible as a biography of somebody? How many of us have maybe read a biography of a past president? And we know in detail much about their lives and their, and their accomplishments and the things they've achieved and, and even their character and personality. But do we know them? How many people read the Bible this way to memorize the details and what God's achievements and his actions and, and his methods and the things he describes? But do we know him? Is there a personal experience? Do we take time to hear the still small voice speaking with us? Do we, do we open our hearts in real life experience and ask him to be a participant in our decision making? This is where we come to know God in the experiences of life. And there's a, there's a neat quote that I put in here um, out of uh, Christian Temperance and Bible Hy- Hygiene that I'll leave in the notes for you to, to read. It's a very powerful quote about what is real experience. In fact, no, I've got to have to read it to you and we'll close. I've got, I got to go a couple minutes over. Here's the quote. Experience is said to be the best teacher. Genuine experience is indeed superior to mere theoretical knowledge. But many have an erroneous idea of what constitutes experience. Real experience is gained by a variety of careful experiments made with the mind free from prejudice, uncontrolled from previously established opinions and habits. The results are marked with careful solicitude and anxious desire to learn, to improve, and to reform on every point that is not in harmony with physical and moral laws. That which many term experience is not experience at all. It has resulted from mere habit or from a course of indulgence thoughtlessly and often ignorantly followed. I'm going to give you an example of that in today's society in just a moment. There has not been a fair trial by actual experiment. Think this through, scientific method, experiment. And thorough investigation with a knowledge of the principles, God's design laws, involved in the action. Experience which is opposed to natural law, which is in conflict with the unchangeable principles of nature, is not to be relied upon. Superstition arising from a diseased imagination is often arrayed in opposition to reason and scientific principles. To many, a person, the idea that others may gainsay what he has learned by experience seems folly and even cruelty itself. Think that one through, I'm going to show you in a minute. But there are more errors received and held through false ideas of experience than from any other cause. Today, how this comes through, that's my truth. Yep. That's my truth. That's my truth. More errors. And to, and to um, oppose that, to gainsay, to say, no, that's not reality, that's not truth. Here are the scientific principles involved. Here's how reality actually works. To gainsay that seems folly and even cruelty itself. You're abusing me. You're an intolerant. You're a bigot. You can't say those things. You're hurting my feelings. This is what happens when people have false experience and think that their, their experience is reality. It's not. Real experience is understanding how reality works. A simple example would be the person that says, cigarette smoke helps me feel better. That's my truth. While denying all the reality that it's killing them, all the science, all the evidence, 
And you can apply that across a whole landscape of things happening in our society that if you actually speak up to, you will be stoned and condemned as a bigot or as an intolerant. I've put some things on our website recently calling some of these things to account. And oh, has there been crying and wailing, calling me all kinds of things. You know something? We have an obligation to speak truth and love, how reality works. You know, as a doctor, I tell my patients the dangers of cigarette smoking. Some of them get angry, don't want to come back and see me anymore. But I have an obligation to do that. I hope that you will take this principle and begin applying it to your life, real experience, how reality works, understanding God's design laws, and how they apply to your life. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the creator and that your laws never change. They're exactly the way you've made them, an expression of your character of love. Give us wisdom. Give us insight. Help us to be able to face the things that are uncomfortable in order to embrace the realities of your kingdom and be transformed and be ever brighter in shining the truths of your kingdom in this world. We again pray that you will use the circumstances and situations happening now in this world to turn hearts and minds to you that they can see the grace and beauty of your character and kingdom. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.